you're new to our church, every May we shut down uh, all adult Sunday school classes and just do a combined kind of lecture series. And typically it's my opportunity to uh, lecture on some theological matters, um, just kind of gives me that space. Uh, but we're, we're uh, Mark, Will, and I are all doing it this year, um, quite frankly, because I don't feel qualified to do an entire lecture series on um, passing the faith to the next generation because uh, my kids are young and um, we're not there yet. So um, they're, they're each taking a week. And um, the, like I said, the concept behind it this year is uh, not necessarily the explanation of covenant theology, but the application of covenant theology. Um, I have already lectured, by the way, on covenant theology and as well as covenant baptism, infant baptism, and those are online for you to listen to. But we thought it'd be helpful to discuss the implications and applications of covenant theology to the next generation. Uh, I suppose a cheeky way of stating this is this is our defense of what is commonly referred to as Presbyterian evangelism. If you are unfamiliar with that saying, uh, it's a silly critique of Presbyterianism. Uh, Historically, we're not known as the best evangelists. We have a lot to learn from our Baptist brothers and sisters, for example. But we do make a lot of babies and baptize them into the faith and disciple them to embrace the faith. So uh, instead of evangelizing new converts, we just create new converts, which is exceedingly more difficult and less cost effective, but it is what it is. Now we joke, but what we are hoping to do with this lecture series is to show you how that actually is God's primary means of reaching the next generation. Not the exclusive means, the primary means. Yes, it is true that we are just one generation away from losing the Christian faith. That's a sobering thought, is it not? If the Lord tarries in a hundred years, nearly every person on this planet will be gone. And it will be inhabited by 10 to 12 billion new image bearers of God who are not yet alive. And we want to make as many of them as possible to name Jesus Lord. How do we do that? Yes, as the uh, beginning, uh, filling the earth, we want to share the gospel. As they begin to fill the earth, we want to share the gospel with them. And yes, our tradition has struggled with that. Uh, The last May lecture series I did before covid Uh, shut uh, the past two Mays down, was on evangelism in the secular age. I'm all for evangelism. We need to do better at evangelism. But following the principle of multiplication, the most effective strategy is to have babies who will have babies who will have babies and create these massive lineages of the Christian faith. And um, And that posterity is also an outwardly focused uh, lineage, uh, doing evangelism. If that happens, now we're really onto something, right? Uh, because every new convert is not just one soul saved. They are the beginning of a new lineage, a new story. Our church is filled, and uh, this is really exciting stuff in our, uh, in, in our Presbyterian world. Our, our church is filled with first-generation Christians, and we rejoice in every single one of them on their own, their own story. But every first-generation Christian is also a seed of a multi-generational legacy for Jesus. So it gets even more exciting when we evangelize. Now, all this sounds amazing in theory, but as every seasoned parent will tell you, it is easier said than done. 
And for some parents or grandparents here <clears throat> or listening online, you know uh, that pain in profoundly in profound ways. Uh, I would just say this, give yourself grace. You could literally make zero parenting mistakes and salvation still belongs to the Lord. So be gracious to yourself as the Lord is gracious to you. And I will close with some thoughts for you. So Will got us going uh, last week. And if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend you do. I learned a lot that I'm going to apply to my parenting. And in many ways, like I said, I feel unqualified for this topic because whereas Mark and Will have done it, I, I guess both of them are a couple years from being empty nesters, I'm in the throes of it. And I guarantee you in 10 years, this talk would be very different. Rewriting this talk according to my uh, mistakes as a father. But as one in the trenches, I think it is helpful to add my perspective to the discussion. I want to do it this way. I want to come at it theologically and then practically. Okay. Let's start with the theology. The most significant people in a child's life is the child's parent. Parents. Will was right last week to begin with Genesis 1 because that's how God ordained it from the beginning. The Bible talks covenantally. You and your children. You and your children. This is the repeated theme of Scripture. We in America, in our culture of individualism, we focus individually. The Bible focuses on families. And this is because God has ordained the family, the covenantal family, as the most formative institution on earth. And it will be that way until eternity. There simply is no power like the power of the covenantal family. You've heard the common saying that educational choices are so important because teachers get your kids all day and you only get them a few hours at night. That would be true if covenantal theology were not true, but covenantal theology is true. A child could listen to their teacher talk all day and it wouldn't hold nearly the weight as one thoughtful conversation from their mo mother or father. A child could get bullied by their peers, but the affirmation, the approval, the delight in the eyes of a parent over that child could overcome that trauma. And yes, a child could be told by the entire world that following Jesus is ridiculous. But parents who follow Jesus is still more persuasive. Now, all of that is both relieving and weighty at the same time. Here's the relief. Parents chill with the school anxiety. Their education will not make or break them. Their friends will not make or break them. Entertainment consumed or entertainment restricted will not make or break them. Avoiding traumatic experiences will not make them and traumatic experiences will not break them. Of course, you need to be thoughtful. Of course, you need to be um, protective. They are, um, they, they need that from you, but they are not as circumstantially fragile as you fear. That's the good news. Here's the waiting news. All that formative power that you think belongs to circumstances actually belongs to you. <clears throat> to you as parents and the family of God that has made vows to our covenant children. So if I could sum up the entire theology of covenantal parenting, it would be this. They will love what you love. Not they will think what you think. Not they will do what you say. Not they will be what you want them to be. They will love what you love. 
And the hard part is love cannot be faked. They are intuitive. They sense it. They know what has captured your love. And the power of the covenant is that children do tend to love what has captured the hearts of their parents. My go-to illustration that I've shared multiple times when I do a covenant baptism to help us conceive of this is Kentucky sports. You've probably heard it, but some of you may not. Why is love for Kentucky athletics such a multi-generational cherished tradition of our state? Because Kentucky athletics is so loved by our state. If you go visit any uh, labor or uh, delivery ward of a Kentucky hospital, chances are one of those newborn babies in the nursery will be wearing a UK onesie or uh, a, a, a UK tiny little, what do they call those hats? I don't know, um, beanies or whatever. You know what that is? Baptism. They have taken the symbol of their cherished love and placed it upon their newborn child. No parent is a Baptist when it comes to the other loves of their life. I have yet to find a parent who says, I will wait until my child gets old enough to decide for themselves whether they want to wear UK's logo. No way. They are members of the Big Blue Nation by birthright. And through the liturgical practices that Will spoke of last week, they raise them within the story of their love for UK. They take them to games. They recount legendary moments. They teach them the cheers. They tailgate before football games. They get them out of school for the first rounds of March Madness and all of these things. These are liturgies of their love. Of course, there will come a point when the child chooses to embrace UK as their team. That is to say, their parents' love will become personal to them. That happened for me in 1992 when Christian Lehner hit that shot. I cried. And all of a sudden, I was like, this is very personal to me. What has happened? Well, my father's idol had become my idol, and I was converted. Now, of course, there's a chance that I could have grown up and committed apostasy and cheered for Louisville. That happens. That happens sometimes. But even then, it would probably be a reaction to something against my father. But that is the exception. Typically, our children love what we love. It's a silly analogy, but I think you get the point. This is the essence of covenant theology. And the reason why I start with that is because I'm about to get practical. But all those practicalities are powerless against your truest love. You can go through the motions without the love, and they will know it's empty religion. Put it like this. Mark, on the other hand, likes to fake his Kentucky fandom. He's, he's doing the right thing as a pastor in Kentucky. He has no choice, right? But we know where his heart is, right? So he wears Kentucky clothes when he goes to games and he goes to tailgates and yeah, he'll cheer and stuff that, uh, like that. But come on, we all know where his love is. It's for Tennessee. He, he honors us with his lips, but his heart is far from us. <laughs> and this is true when passing the faith to your children. You, you, so you're a parent now, right? You're a parent. And you know, okay, religion's important to my kids' lives. So yeah, we gotta, we got to go to church. We're going to pray before meals. I'll read them the children's Bible and so forth. But your children will know what you love. And I'm not suggesting it's all or nothing, by the way. I could love Jesus and genuinely want my kids to love Jesus. But they could also sense deep down there are competing idols of my heart. They can intuit. They can intuit. Yeah, 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 Jesus. But what I really love, child, is your success. What I really love is your academic or athletic achievement. 
What I really love is for you to make a lot of money one day. What I really love is your moralism that reflects well on me as a parent. What I really love is for you to get married and form that idyllic family that I get to put on a Christmas card and all my friends will be jealous. You get the point. Our children are mirrors of the idols of our heart. It's not that they will follow your lead, they will follow your love. Now again, this is tough to hear for many of us. I'm already seeing it in my kids and it hurts. It hurts a lot. This morning, this morning, before I could come to church and preach to you, I had to, I was a little late getting here because I had to spend some time repenting to Charlie. Because I hurt him last night with my words because he was pressing in on something idolatrous in me. And it hurts. I get it. So I know the principle can hurt, but it is what it is. The first and foremost key to passing Jesus on to your children is to enthrone Jesus in your heart. Renouncing all idols, returning again to your first love, knowing that your first love will tend to be their first love. All right, so that's the theology. Let's move to the practicalities. And here's, here's where I'm most deficient here, right? Because I'm, I'm inexperienced. Um, so what I'm going to do instead of maybe talking more out of my experiences is talking more about the research. I think that would help. As we continue to see um, the alarming rates of youth leaving the Christian faith, there is actually a lot of sociological work being done right now on that trend. Uh, the rise of the nons, the non-religious. There's actually a lot of uh, studies being done. And these studies are only reinforcing the theological point that I've already made. There are certain commonalities among children who do not leave the church and do not leave the faith. And they actually might surprise you. It's not organized family devotions. It's not they went to Sunday school or youth group. It's not an educational choice or things that we typically think make the difference. You see, all those things can be manufactured without the parents' love, right? And so what studies are showing is that the indicators are smaller and more organic manifestations of what only takes place when Jesus is truly the love of your home. Before I get to some of that, let me root us in Scripture, just so you know I'm not doing sociology here. Uh, Deuteronomy 10 and 11. Uh, the newly formed uh, nation of Israel has been given the law of the Lord and are receiving his commission. And repeatedly, that commission speaks with the language of love. You shall love the Lord your God, love the Lord your God, love the Lord your God. In the context of that love, they are given this famous command that should be viewed as the overflow of that love of God. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, fix these words of mine on your hearts and minds, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, write them as door frames of your houses and on your gates. Do you see the imagery here? God is painting a picture that is more organic than it is programmatic. An all-encompassing culture where children are simply immersed in the parents' love for the Lord. We use the word ethos around here a lot. The parents' love for the Lord creates an ethos of love for the Lord that envelops everything the family does. It's not that you sit them down for a devotional. It's that, quote, when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Do you see? Love for God is the air they breathe. And like I said, these studies reinforce that principle. What I'm going to do is I'm combining a lot of research, some of it more formal academic research, some of it just, you know, like barnacles and, and, and things like that. And I'm going to condense it all down into five trends 
that are common among children who continue in the faith of their parents. The first one is this, go to church. First and foremost, corporate worship is prioritized in the home. Now, as we will see in just a moment, it's more than simply going to church, but it is not less than that. I don't want to bind consciousness here. It's okay to miss church for um, rare extenuating circumstances, but if there is a consistent pattern of skipping worship for other things, things that you easily could justify as important, but what it will do is your children will intuit that these things are more important to you. So their sports, their activities, the fun weekend getaway, tough week, let's just get away this weekend. Or in the age of online worship, simply sleeping in and wearing pajamas and casually watching on, from the couch. Even just that is intuiting, like, is this really that important or is it just something we do because we have to do and we really want to just sleep in? But it's not just church attendance. It matters how you attend. I found one study really interesting. They found a correlation with this simple thing. Kids saw their dad sing. Isn't that fascinating? They remembered their father singing the hymns. What's that show you? The ordained head of the home actually loved the Lord enough to do what grown, man don't, grown men don't do. They sing. So I would say not just church attendance, but authentic participatory church attendance. And then also service to the church. Kids that stay in church tend to be those who are raised as servants, not consumers of the church. I think your kids should be in children's Sunday school classes. I really do. It's really important. But if you made me choose between Sunday school or you serving with them in the nursery or you uh, ha having them join you as the, on the greeter team or whatever, there are plenty of opportunities to serve. Give me the latter. You should do both. But finding opportunities for them to serve on Sundays is really important. All right, here's the second thing. Five of seven weeks at the dinner table together. Will talked a lot about the table last week, so I won't spend much time here, but I cannot overemphasize the importance of dinner um, together as a family. The table, and here's why, that, here's why this fits into this theology of love. The table universally is recognized across every culture as the space of intimacy, right? It's where people get to know each other. The Lord ordained his sacrament as a table, and we call it what? Communion. We commune around the table. And what happens as we commune together around the table is we get to know each other's loves, don't we? So again, it comes back to your first love. If you share a meal together five of seven nights a week, your kids will have no choice but to get to know your love. And if Jesus is your love, that's what will come out organically. I like how Will said it last week. Not to give you pressure to make the, the, the dinner table this you know, devotional moment, but that just conversations just naturally go that direction. Here is how I, as your parent, interpreted, interpret what happened with you at school today through my unmistakable lens of love for Jesus. Now, I know that is idealistic for those parents in the early stages of parenting. I heard Will talk about this last week in the conversations that are having. I'm like, bro, come, come to dinner at my house and see how many conversations like that you have. He's in that stage where it works. And I'm starting to notice um, that our conversations are becoming more thoughtful and, and less chaotic as, you know, I got a 13, 11, and 9, but then we had Henry and it just, you know, whatever. It's back to the chaos. But even still, it's silly to think that we're going to have substantive communion with kids until their teenage years. But what we do try to do is mark our meals 
uh, with a small liturgy that just reinforces our love for Jesus. So this is what the Cunninghams do. Come with your own. I stole this from the Anglican tradition. I say, the eyes of all look to you, our Lord, our kids say, and you give them their food in due season. I say, you open your hands and they say, and satisfy the desires of all living things. Then I pray and then I ask, what is your only hope in life and death? And they, not the whole catechism, I'm not going to ask them to do the whole thing, but our only hope in life and death is that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Just a simple little thing to mark this table with love for Jesus. Okay, number three. One organic spiritual conversation a week. Organic being the key. I think you should do intentional devotionals as best you can. I really do. I think you should catechize your children. I really do. But what gives me hope as a parent who is terrible at the structured, um, intentional discipleship stuff, and I'm, is Abby here? I don't see her. She's amening. She, she really wants me to step up here, and I need to step up here. But what does give me hope as one who struggles with the intentional discipleship is the studies show that organic spiritual conversations hold much more weight. And there's a reason why this is. It's on their terms. It's personal. It's applicable. It's meeting them where they are with what's going on in their life and speaking Jesus into that. I hate to name drop, but I'm going to name drop because I think you will find this encouraging as parents. And he wouldn't mind me sharing this. I was talking to uh, Tim Keller once about parenting because he has uh, all boys, too. And they're all walking with the Lord as adults, um, which tragically is, is rare for celebrity pastors, as you probably know. And uh, again, he wouldn't mind me sharing this. He said, listen, the good news for you, Robert, is that Kathy and I are really bad parents, according to the traditional models. Th that feels good, right? Tim Keller's a bad parent. We really didn't have family devotionals. But the one thing we did do well is we were never too busy for conversations. We would drop anything to process with our boys about Jesus. And what I'm telling you is that studies have shown you only have to do that once a week. Isn't that amazing? It sounds easy, but every parent will tell you it's not. You have to be ready and available for disruption. At times, it's obvious. Something happened at school or hanging out with friends or during the game or activity and you know you need to drop everything and engage that. And that's what you need to do. Engage their life with the love of Jesus. But even more importantly, is listening to that parental intuition. You can sense a child is struggling. They seem anxious. They seem withdrawn. They seem sad. They seem angry. Your parental gut is telling you something is off. Here's what I would say. Everything stops until you get to the bottom of that. That discipleship, that engaging their life and processing their life, that organic spiritual conversation is more important than making, making them sit for family devotions, which can feel exploitive, quite honestly. Sit and listen so I feel better about myself as a parent. <laughs> All right, number four, serve together as a family. This is where Abby and I have felt massively convicted lately. So do the Cunninghams really love Jesus? Okay, Dad, you're a pastor. Okay, Dad, you're up there preaching to everybody and doing your podcasts and all that stuff. Do you really love Jesus? If so, you will be loving the poor and needy. Do you really love Jesus? If so, we will be sharing the gospel of Jesus with our neighbors. So maybe we don't love Jesus as much as we suppose is the message I send. Nothing is more impressive to your kids than inviting them to join you on mission 
for Jesus. But we just get so fat and happy in our suburban home and busy routines, and our kids can't help but notice that. They see our love for comfort competing with our love for Jesus. And so we're sending mixed messages there. And serving together as a family is even more important than ever now. I've, I've talked about how our rising generation is not asking whether Christianity is true, but whether it's beautiful. They want to see it works at fixing the problems of our world. Show them that it does. Show them that there is not a greater force for justice and mercy than the gospel and invite them to come along with you. So there are plenty of ways of application. I told you that um, our house is repenting of this and I literally came to Luke Rakestraw and I said, Luke, I hereby as my pastor am telling you, hold my family accountable to this. We have to love the poor in our city. You are in charge of Justice and Mercy TCPC. Hold me accountable. I am submitting myself to you. I've, I've got to get better at this. Find your mission, invite your kids along. All right, last one. One mentor who loves Jesus besides their parents. One mentor who loves Jesus besides their parents. This is where we come to the role of the church has vowed to assist parents in raising their children. We had a baptism this morning. Mark looked at the congregation after the parents took the vows, and he says, do you promise to assist them, whatever the vow goes, and basically to help them. Will talked a lot about this last week, so I'm not going to spend much time here, but they are called covenant children for a reason. They don't just belong to parents. They belong to the covenant family. They will not just follow the love of their parents. They will also follow the love of this community. I cannot overemphasize how important it is for your kids to look up to a Christian besides their parents. Out of all the studies, this is the greatest predictor. This is, this is the number one being talked about in evangelicalism right now. Someone besides their parents who loves Jesus that they look up to. And I want to speak specifically to, to uh, our whole church, definitely. Um, if you're, if, if you're um, an empty nester and uh, done with the parenting, you're not done with the parenting. If you are single or you have, are struggling with infertility and don't have kids, you do have kids. But I want to cast this vision specifically to our college and young adults in our church. I looked at a demographic study this week of our church, graphed out, and we're a very young church. We've got a, lot, we've got a lot of folks in this demographic. My kids like me, but they don't think I'm cool. They roll their eyes at my dad jokes, and they should. I embarrass them with awkward behavior. They love me, but they don't think I'm cool. I cannot tell you how much it would mean to Abby and I if one of these college or young adult guys who are actually cool would spend some time, meaningful time with my boys. Suddenly, they would realize you can be cool and love Jesus. You are so important to the next generation because the next generation looks up to you not necessarily their parents. Okay, I've got to close here for time. Um, but like I said, I want, I want my closing word to be those uh, for whom this Sunday school series is painful. Uh, your kids or your grandkids have left the faith they were raised in, sometimes with a militant spirit about it. Two things. The first is that you must give yourself grace that is already yours in the gospel. First and foremost... You've got to give yourself grace for your sake. You can't 
live a life of self-condemnation. It's a miserable life. It is not the free life that is yours in Christ Jesus. So for your sake, you have to give yourself grace. But secondly, for your kids' sake, remember, they tend to love what you love. Well, self-condemnation does not show them love for Jesus. It shows them that Jesus is not sufficient, and it shows them that you hate yourself. What if you accepted that the grace of Jesus is greater than even your greatest parenting regrets? Would that not create a profound, newfound love for Jesus that he could even handle a parent who blew it like me? What if you were so in love with Jesus that as much as you are brokenhearted over your children, you actually do love Jesus more than your children? Ironically, that would be compelling to them. They cannot feel like the source of your greatest fear and failure. They need to sense that as much as you would love for them to join you as a follower of Jesus, even if they choose not to, there is this strange peace and resolve that Jesus is enough. A child knows, a child that has left the faith, they know they've broken your heart. But what if they saw a heart that said, actually, I'm okay because I have Jesus. If I have Jesus and nothing else, including even my family, I still have everything. If you condemn yourself, if you perpetually despair and freak out over them, if you're trying to force something that isn't there, then they will intuit that they are your idol that you love them more than Jesus. They need to see that actually, I love Jesus more than anything, including even you. And then trust that in the end, and it may be after you're gone, oftentimes it is. Just, I don't know if it's an encouraging thing or not, but <laughs> just so you know, oftentimes kids, return, kids that have rebelled against their parents' faith return to their parents' faith when they suffer the loss of their parent. Um, suddenly all that, all that was tough for them becomes a source of nostalgia and love in an appropriate way. It might be after you're gone, but eventually you trust what God has promised. They're going to love what you love. The second thing for you is something Will spoke of a lot last week, so I won't spend much time here. But it's so important that it bears repeating. Repentance, repentance, repentance. Not self-justification, not saying, look, I, I, I made some mistakes, but I just, I was doing the best that I could. Why can't you get over it? Whatever. No, no, no. Repentance. It's never too late to repent to your kids. There is, um, there was, I'm sure if you fit in this category, there, there was a point when I was going through all of that, um, all of those uh, studies that um, perhaps multiple times during this talk where you said to yourself, oh, I wish I heard that when I was a parent. Well, you're still a parent. You still are. Whatever that was that stood out to you is like, I missed it there. You can go back and you can apologize to them for not doing that. You can go back and say, I'm so sorry that I was so busy that we barely made time for dinner. And dinner is such an important part of your development. 
That's when we get to know each other the best. And I didn't make time for it. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? When I was talking about these organic spiritual conversations, you can go back to your, your children and say, as I've reflected over my parenting, I think where I really missed you is I wasn't attuned enough to meet you where you were, to stop everything and have a conversation, to explore what was going on in your heart and in your life. I think I missed that. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Serving together. You could go back, boy, would your kids respect this. You could go back to them and you can say, listen, here's the Christianity I gave you. I made you go to church. I, uh, you know, maybe we did family devotionals. I asked you to read the Bible and, you know, a lot of good things and stuff. We never were doing anything for Jesus together. I, I just, I look back and I just, I'm so sad that we weren't, we didn't pick up a cause in our city and just together as a family, go after it. I think I missed you there. And I th think I set a bad example for what a follower of Jesus looks like. And I'm changing now, but I, an important part of that change is I want you to forgive me for that. You get the point. Something stuck out, go back and repent to them. It's never too late. All right, I've got to, I've got to let us out of here. Um, let, me, let me say this. Parenting, parenting cannot be reduced down to a May Sunday school series, okay? Please, please, we take vows to assist you in raising your children. Please give us the pleasure of fulfilling those vows. Please, if, as you go through this lecture series, it's like, oh my goodness, this, 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 this. I don't even know where to start. Start with us. Reach out to Mark. Reach out to Mark and say, I'm not parenting alone anymore. I need the help of my pastors, of my elders, of my parish group, of my community. Let us as a church help you parent your child because that's what we have vowed to do. And you would be doing us a blessing and a service to let us fulfill our vows. All right, let me pray. Lord, nothing is more sensitive and painful and also joyful and happy than to talk about our children. And yes, um, yes, it's so weighty. But Lord, as our father Abraham did, we put our children on the metaphorical altar and we say, we actually do love you more than our kids. That actually our kids belong to you before they belong to us. We are but stewards of their life. And so, Lord, please help us to love you above all else, trusting that our children will eventually love what we love. I pray for a prodigious grace and mercy to be poured out on the parents of this church, whether they're in the throes of it or they're uh, done with it. Grandparents, Lord, just shower us with the mercy that we need in this area more than anything else. Thank you for our children. Thank you for all those lives down the hall as the most important members of this church are the ones in the nursery who don't even know that they're members of this church. Would you raise up the next generation to love Jesus? 
We're going to be gone in 100 years. And this world will be filled with 12 billion new people. Oh, we pray that the gospel would go forth. And that billions upon billions of them would name Jesus as Lord. But help us to be faithful here in this church, in this community, to our small part of that commission. Raise up the next generation to know you, to love you, to serve you, to give their lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.